I think it's supposed to clear up, so I think it's still looking pretty good, but uh, of course it rained today, right? That's how it works. Hey, we're going to talk about evangelism today, just to make you uncomfortable. Um, and so, just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Some of you guys are like, why do we need to talk about that? Some of you guys are offended that we would talk about sharing our faith with others, and, and others are just maybe feeling guilty, maybe feeling like, oh, today, I could have come a different day. Um, but here's the thing. We get to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best news in the entire world. And not only do we get to do that, we've actually been given help to do that. The Holy Spirit has come upon those who are believers to empower us to do this work that we can't do on our own. We get to share the gospel. We've been commanded to share the gospel. We're helped to share the gospel. But the reality is, most Christians don't share the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, help us to be obedient to your command and to learn how to share the gospel well. Not to check some box of what we're supposed to do, but because we, we know that Jesus is life and that he changes everything. And that we can be reconciled to you, God, not because of our own goodness, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, Lord, help us to learn how to do it better. Help us to be faithful and excited about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We can learn a lot about how to do evangelism by watching the Apostle Paul share the gospel, not just in Jewish contexts like we've seen in the last few weeks, but also how he shared the gospel with people who had never heard about Jesus before. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, we read about the Apostle Paul bringing the gospel message to Athens. You, you can see there's the Parthenon, probably one of the most famous pieces of architecture in human history. It was built like 2,400 years ago, and it still stands. Uh, it's in the process of being renovated because I guess after 2,400 years, you need a little upkeep. But it's interesting, if we, if we look at the story and how it unfolds, going to Athens was actually not the Apostle Paul's plan. He was not expecting to be there. He was there because he had to flee for his life from the city of Berea because of the Thessalonians that had gone there and agitated the crowd. He fled for his life on a ship and he was dropped off in Athens and now he's in Athens waiting for his team of people to kind of catch up with him. Silas and Timothy. But as he's there, he sees some things. And as he sees some things, it leads him to feel something. And as he feels something, he goes and does something. And when he goes and does something, he speaks the message of the truth. So four words for the note takers among us this morning. When it comes to evangelism, see, feel, go, say. See, feel, go, say. Four words. See, we're going to look at what Paul saw, what he felt, where he went, and what he said. And the big idea today is to be faithful witnesses, we must contextualize and contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the story, Acts chapter 16, 
or chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not, actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Interesting story, isn't it? About the gospel going to an incredibly pagan city filled with idols and altars. See, feel, go, speak. This is the natural progression of evangelism. What we see causes us to feel things. And what we feel, often, it's only when we feel that we're moved to do, we're moved to go, we're moved to speak. And when we speak, we need to use words because the gospel is not self-evident from just being nice or just being good. The gospel is actually news. And you need to share news with words, right? Of course the gospel transforms our life and it makes us kind-hearted and peace-loving and servant-hearted people. But it also frees us to be truth-speaking people regardless of whether people receive the message or reject the message. 
whether people receive the messenger or reject the messenger. So, what did Paul see that caused him to feel something? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, we read, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Captain Obvious here, right? I mean, you walk around Athens, you would bump into a statue or an altar. Everywhere you turned, there was a temple, a statue, an altar to this god or to that god. You see, it was the center of much of Greek religion and thought. the, The Greek and Roman religion had a pantheon of gods, one for every single thing under the sun, it seemed. Zeus was the god of the sky, wielding lightning and thunder, giving or withholding rain, Athena was the goddess of wisdom and war. This, the city was named after her. Poseidon, the god of the sea. Dionysus, the god of partying and of wine. And on and on and on it went. And Paul even sees an altar with the inscription that he would later use in his message to an unknown god. Now, why have an altar to an unknown god? Well, see, the Greek people believed that the gods could be placated if venerated. They could even be manipulated into giving you what you wanted. You simply needed to make a deal with them, give them an oath, offer a vow, offer a sacrifice to them, and they would do your bidding, hopefully. Now, because gods were temperamental like this, you didn't want to offend them, right? And so, You want to keep them happy and offer them sacrifices so that they would bless you and give you good things. Now, an unknown God altar is kind of like an insurance policy in case we missed one, right? Uh, A Greek poet by the name of Diogenes Laertes said this, The practice of anonymous worship was a safety precaution, thinking that if the gods were not properly venerated, they would strike the city. Thus, if we missed any god... This altar is for you. Thus the altar to the unknown God. Kind of a get out of jail free card, right? Like, if we missed any of you, we're sorry. Now Paul was no dummy. He looked around and he saw the rampant idolatry of the city, the false gods, all clear conflict with the commands that God had given about himself. And so as he saw these things, it actually caused him to feel something. We read that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked. This word means to be disturbed, to be angered. He was distraught. It bothered him. He was offended by all of the idols that he saw. He saw all of these people around, and he saw their false worship. He saw the ways in which they made a mockery of God and his law, and he was disturbed. He was provoked. He was angered. But isn't it interesting that in his anger, in his offense, he engages them with incredible kindness, patience, In fact, he seeks to build bridges into what they do believe. He was um, respectful, even as he contends for the truth of the gospel. So as he sees the rampant idolatry, he sees all of these people grasping for God, longing to know God, seeking the divine, but seeking it in all of the wrong places. He's upset by this. And so he does something about it. Now, a couple things about seeing and feeling. I found that it's not until I feel that I actually do something. 
I can see until I can see no more. But, but it, it's not until I'm actually hit by something, until it moves me emotionally that I actually begin to act or begin to care. We often see this pattern in Jesus' ministry as well. Do you know that? Often, the, the gospel writers will say that he saw and he had compassion. For instance, he saw and he saw that the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. They had, he had compassion and so he taught them and he healed them. He went into a town and he saw a widow who had just lost her only son and he was moved with compassion and he healed him, raised him to life. Or he saw a man on the Sabbath day come into the synagogue with a withered hand and he saw two things. One, he saw the little game of gotcha that the religious leaders were trying to play with this guy and his deformity and he was angered by it. But his anger didn't cause him to not actually see this man. Actually, it fueled his compassion that they would use him as a pawn and so he healed him anyway even though it would cost him greatly. Seeing leads to feeling which leads to action. But too often we don't see, either because we're distracted or because we're actually distracting ourselves so that we don't feel. Now, sometimes we're too distracted to notice. I was really captured by both of those images up there. There you have a husband and a wife lying in bed next together, next to each other, and what are they doing? They're staring at their phones. There you have a group of friends that are gathering together in public in a social situation, and what are they all doing? Now, I know we love to rip on millennials and Gen Z, but let me just tell you, it does not stop with them. We are crazy addicted to our phones. And I'm a phone addict myself. (laughs) Around the dinner table, we've got to distract ourselves The last thing we do before we go to bed is distract ourselves. As we walk through public places, as we ride on buses, as we do all of these things, sometimes as we sit on the edge of the shore of Lake Superior, we don't even see it because we're looking at our phone. Why? Maybe it's because we don't want to see. Because when we see, we feel things. Or maybe... We see so many things there that are causing us to feel so many things that we have no empathy or emotion left over for the people in our world. Do you know that that's one of the costs? See, I think sometimes we're so distracted into not seeing because we're supposed to feel all of these things that we don't have compassion for. I mean, think about it. If, if you actually emotionally invested in everything that you heard in the news You'd be a basket case, wouldn't you? We can't process that level of emotion. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you're not outraged, it means you're not paying attention? As if we're supposed to feel guilty that we're not outraged all the time. Now here's the thing. If you are paying attention, there is always something to be outraged by. There is. We live in a sinful world. It's still broken, last time I checked. And, oh yeah, it's still broken. And there are things going on right now that are horrible and evil and do cause us to feel some things. 
But maybe it's a sign of our brokenness if we're so moved and broken by all of the things out there that we actually don't see the things that are right in front of our face. We don't actually see the people that are right in front of us all the time. Now, I got to believe that the spirit-filled life that God calls us to live is not one of outrage all the time. Now, there are times when we are righteously outraged, but I got to believe that we shouldn't spend all of our waking hours outraged about something. I think God has something different for us, okay? So how do we train ourselves to begin seeing again when we're either so distracted or we're constantly numbing ourselves so that we don't feel? Maybe we just put certain boundaries and exercises around our phones and around the screens to train ourselves to be present. Now, this is not something that just Christians are saying. Almost every counselor that you'll talk to these days is talking about something called mindfulness. Being aware of the place that you actually are. Being present in the place that you actually are. And that that's one of the things that actually restores your humanity. And that we actually have to retrain ourselves to be present where we are, among the people we're around. And when we do that, it's amazing how we begin to see and we begin to feel. And it's amazing how just our trip to the grocery store reminds us that we're actually interacting with other image bearers of God. And we start asking ourselves questions that many of us is not even on our radar. (laughs) I wonder what they're dealing with today. I wonder how I could bring the love and the presence of God to them today. And the them being anyone that you interact with. The clerk at the store. The person pushing their cart. The person that seems to be in such a hurry on the road, rather than simply responding to them, asking yourself, I wonder what's going on in their world. I wonder what what they're dealing with today. Because here's what I've found. We're all dealing with something. We're all dealing with something. And we're not on our best behavior all the time. And so if we actually just started being present and aware of our surroundings and aware of the image bearers of God around us, it is amazing to me how much evangelism will pop up. It will. Because you actually see people. And a lot of times people are chasing all of the things that will not make them happy, that will not answer the deep longing in their soul. And so the Apostle Paul was in the city of Athens. He didn't plan on being there, but as he's walking around, he sees all of this seeking, but seeking in all the wrong ways. And so it provoked him to go. It provoked him to go. Where did he go? Well, he went to three places. He went to the synagogue, the marketplace, and the Areopagus, or the church, the marketplace, and the academy. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, his faithful witness in these different places looked different depending on where he was. What he says and how he goes about sharing the gospel in each of these contexts is different. The gospel is the same, but the people that he's speaking to is different because they have different backgrounds and agendas and different presuppositions that he has to engage with. And so in each of these places, what does he say? When he's preaching and doing evangelism in the Jewish synagogue, 
It's probably going to sound a lot like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13 and chapter 16. And even the beginning of this chapter when he's in, this, in the synagogue in Thessalonica and the synagogue in Berea. It's probably going to be a lot of time in the Old Testament because the people were steeped in the Old Testament. They saw it as God's word. They were waiting for the promises made in the Old Testament. And so he shows up and he goes through the Old Testament to show them that Jesus is the one. He's the one they've been longing for. He's the one they've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. And he's not just the Messiah for the Jewish people. He's also the Messiah for all people. And so we don't need to read what he said there. In fact, the author of Acts, Luke, one of Paul's companions, doesn't choose to include it because we have so many examples of him doing that. But then Paul goes to the marketplace, the Agora. You can see it actually pictured there. That's the, a couple snapshots of the ruins of the Agora in Athens. It was the place that people did business. It was the marketplace. It was where they bought, th- bought stuff. And notice he seeks to reason with whoever is willing to listen to him that day. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with someone on the street or at the mall or at work with a coworker, but it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? A lot of people want to talk to you, And a lot of people don't want to talk to you, right? And so I'm sure not everyone that Paul engaged in conversation in the marketplace, in the Agora, wanted to sit down and talk to him. So he would talk to some, and others he'd probably just quickly move on from. And people in the marketplace aren't looking to hear a sermon, a well-ordered discourse, right? But they might be willing to engage in a back-and-forth conversation with you. We hear about two conversations that he has with an Epicurean philosopher and a Stoic philosopher. Now, we're not privy to the conversation he had, but we are privy to what he said at the Areopagus later on, which would have been a way to engage the Epicureans and the Stoics. See, they label him a preacher of foreign divinities because he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection in a pagan place. Now, the Epicureans, who were these guys? This was a type of philosophy that was popular among the the Greek elite classes, the wealthier people. It was a form of hedonism that sought to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. They rejected the Greek pantheon of gods and didn't wholeheartedly reject the idea of God. They simply saw him like, like a deist would see God. As, well, maybe God created this world, but he's certainly not involved in it. He created it, and he kind of left us on, his own, on our own to, to figure things out. And so the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain, and there's more to it than that, but that's essentially Epicureanism. Now, Stoics, on the other hand, had a very different approach to law, life. This was actually the most popular form of Greek philosophy in that particular day that Paul is engaging with. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever heard the phrase, that person's so stoic? means that they're kind of emotionally unengaged and detached. They have this stiff upper lip. They're cool as a cucumber. See, stoicism had to do with mastering your emotions and your circumstances, detaching from them in a way that they didn't control you or overwhelm you. And we still have that, right? Maybe not in its pure form, but we say, oh, that person's so stoic. Or there are some people that are like, you know, emotions are a scary thing. Let's detach ourselves from them. Let's not really feel because when we feel, we're easily manipulated. Or, you know what, circumstances can be incredibly overwhelming and so we need to live life 
detached from it emotionally so that we can stay in control. We can be in control. Now, they believed in a God, but in a way that was kind of pantheistic, that God was in everything. So the key to Stoicism was, was to do your duty, live in harmony with nature and reason, and mind over matter, mind over emotions, be self-sufficient, don't need anything. So his engagement with these guys, obviously the gospel is going to push on a few of those things, isn't it? The, the way of seeing life under the, the rule and the reign of God, our creator, with, with Jesus, the redeemer, it looks different. And so this dialogue leads to an invitation for him to a place called the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, you might have heard it called. You can actually see it. The left picture up there is, is, is Mars Hill, and then the right picture is, is looking at the Pantheon from Mars Hill. It was a place where they would get together and, and debate different ideas and, and, and discourse over certain things. Um, this would be what I would call the Academy. They say, you're saying some strange things. Why don't you come to the Areopagus where we hear strange things and we debate with them? Now, what is, a lot of people try to say, okay, what, where's the Areopagus today? Where is it that people kind of speak different ideas and debate and, and have conversations about reality? And some people will say, you know, that's the coffee shop. But if you try to do that in most coffee shops, most people are like, my earbuds are in, buddy. I'm trying to get some work done. I want to talk to you. Or if you do that, maybe at the mall, you'll realize, I'm here to shop. I don't want to talk to you. This is weird. We're northern Minnesotans. We don't talk about anything real. I mean, the weather and the Vikings, we're good with those things. But anything that, that, that even gets close to actually real conversation, that makes us a little uncomfortable. Maybe stoicism is alive and well. We just kind of stay distant and cool. And so there's a lot of people that would say, you know what, the, the new Areopagus is actually social media. In fact, there's 4 billion people out of the almost 7 billion people on the planet that are engaged in some platform or another. That's the new coliseum of ideas where the best logic and idea and rhetoric wins. Have you ever had a conversation on social media before? It's not pleasant. Now, here's, here's my favorite. Have you ever had someone else have a conversation on your social media before with other friends? Now, if you're like most human beings, you have a diversity of relationships. And every once in a while, two people will go at it on your front lawn. And you'll be like, dude, I just said something nice about the weather. I thought that was fair game. Now we're talking about global warming and John Kerry's plane. That escalated quickly, right? Here's the thing. I, I actually don't think social media is the new Areopagus. I do think the internet is. But I think social media doesn't actually have the, the tools necessary for actual ongoing dialogue and debate and hearing with good intent. Now, I do think it's a great place to share ideas in the longer form. Things like TED Talks and YouTube and, and web pages and articles and news sources and, and things that people can interact in. But if you try to interact there, it is not going to go well. However, if you hear about and find things there and actually engage with people in a real flesh and blood way, it can be a really powerful thing. It can be a really helpful thing. See, she's trying to engage right now. And... Uh, Maybe this form isn't exactly the way that we want it. Now, can I just say, we love babies around here. 
Can you imagine how sad it would be if we didn't have that some week? So if you ever feel tempted to be distracted by that, just be like, God, I am so glad there are young kids here. Right? Okay, that's how we roll because we're family. All right, back to it. We want to engage with people about these ideas, but we need to be cognizant of the environment that we're in if we want to have a good outcome. I'm not saying that God can't use any outcome, but like there are, there are some that are better than others. And so I think there, are, there is incredible content that you can engage with and engage on, but you can't really engage apart from actual human beings talking to each other. So... To be a faithful witness, we need to both contextualize the message of the gospel. That means we need to speak to the people with the thoughts and dreams and and, and understanding of the world. And so we need to contextualize it, speak in a way that is understandable. But we also need to contend that there are times that we will cut against the grain because God's word is different. And it is offensive to every single people and every single culture in the history of the world. It's just offensive differently. And some of the things that, that, that our current culture would find offensive, there are places in the world to be like, well, everybody knows that. And there are things that we would easily receive that if you went to different parts of the world, they'd be like, no way. Forgive your enemy? Are you kidding? Show grace to people? Are you kidding me? So, so I, just, just, I want you to detach a little bit from our particular cultural moment to say the things that are offensive to us are not offensive all around the world. And some of the things that are easy for us to receive are really hard for other people and other cultures to receive. That also takes away the silly idea that we're only going to cover the stuff in the Bible that isn't offensive because we don't want to have stumbling blocks to people. No, everything is a stumbling block at some point. Right? Every point of doctrine in the history of the world has been debated and people have disagreed about. So we're not reducing it to like the, the lowest common denominator, but we are saying, hey, we, we do understand that God has sent us to a people and to a context. So remember, Paul was provoked by what he saw and what he felt. He was disturbed, he was angry, and yet when he reasons with them, he's cool as a cucumber. In fact, he's very affirming of some of the things that they believe and some of the desires that they have. He's building rapport with them, and then he calls them out. So let's look at how. Keep in mind now that this is just the Cliff Notes version of a sermon, not the whole sermon. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed your objects, the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is a Jesus opening, right? This is a, hey, I saw this, let me tell you about it. I commend you for being religious and for seeking the truth. I even sense in you guys an openness to consider what you maybe haven't heard before. The God that you pursue and are open to as unknown, let me tell you about him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, now he's starting to contend and say, this is a little different. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, in a city filled with temples made by man. (laughs) Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, in a city where people are trying to venerate all of the gods. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. Now we're contending, aren't we? Here, he says, there are not many gods, there are one gods, 
One God. One God. One God. He is the creator of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. In contrast to your understanding of creation or a creator that is distant and detached or one and the same with creation, no, he is distinct. He has made everything and he sustains everything by giving life and breath and everything to us. He doesn't need you. He isn't served by human hands. He can't be manipulated by your offerings and your oaths and your sacrifices like the other false gods that you worship. Zeus and Athena and Poseidon and Mars. Now he's getting feisty, isn't he? Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is sovereign over your life and over where you live and when you live. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That word to feel your way, to, to, to grope toward, is, is actually a, a fairly unique Greek word from the, the story of Ulysses and the Cyclops where he's blinded temporarily and he's groping around trying to find the soldiers. It's saying you're, you're kind of blindly trying to seek and find God. Yet he's actually not very far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As, as even some of your own poets have said. Okay, here Paul, the Jew of Jews, the Bible scholar extraordinaire, is now going to quote pagan prophets. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, we are created in the image of this creator God and share a common humanity. Even though we're different ethnically and religiously and culturally, there is an innate desire in all of us to seek out and pursue and to know God, our creator, which makes sense because we're his offspring. We've been created in his image. In fact, God is not far and distant, but he is right here and ready to be known. He has given us that innate desire to seek him and know him and worship him. St. Augustine said 350 years later, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that is true of us today and them, that there is a a God-shaped hole in all of us that seeks to know our creator, to, to, to worship him, to find something bigger than ourselves, to give us meaning and purpose and desire and life. And we are still groping around trying to find that blindly waving at things. And Paul is saying, he's right here. He's made himself known. And then to establish himself and and to bolster his authority, he actually quotes one of their pagan prophets, a guy by the name of Erratus. It'd be like us quoting a modern author or thinker or musician or leader, like Bob Dylan and his lyrics, everybody got to serve somebody, right? I mean, that's culturally relevant to Duluth. We like to claim him even though he doesn't like to claim us. That's how it goes. He was innately saying everybody serves something. Everybody worships something, right? Now, in in quoting Bob Dylan, do I agree with everything that Bob Dylan agrees with? I should hope not or I would be disqualified to be your pastor. (laughs) And my mind might be gone. Some of you think my mind is gone. This is simply an outworking of what the Bible calls common grace, that truth is truth, even if it comes from a less than agreeable person. To quote Erratus does not mean that Paul agrees with everything that he says. He he doesn't. 
It simply confirms, I'm not the only person in the world that thinks this way or understands things this way. That we are God's offspring created in God's image. He's contextualizing and contending for the gospel. And he says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God isn't like you imagine him to be. He doesn't need statues of himself. In fact, he is actually offended when we try to make statues and idols of him. And so in light of that, you need to repent. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This doesn't mean that God overlooks sin, but that God is patient toward human sin. But now Paul says his patience is over. You need to actually respond in light of the truth presented. He's calling you to repent and believe the truth that I'm preaching to you now, which is this. Verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So God's not only the creator, but he's also the judge. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Well, that's new. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He is driving forward toward Jesus because Jesus is the good news. That God isn't just the creator and the sustainer of life. He isn't just the judge over the living and the dead. He's also the savior. And his name is Jesus. And then he begins to speak of Jesus' resurrection. Now there's a lot of Bible scholars that would criticize Paul here and say, wait a second, Paul, you didn't even talk about the cross. Remember, this is just the Cliff Notes version of his sermon. And it's pretty hard to talk about being raised from the dead if you don't also talk about the fact that you did die, right? Let's step back. What is Paul doing in this particular message? He's actually laying out for the Greek people the redemptive story of God. God, creation, image of God, sin, repentance, judgment, Jesus. Do you see how that's in many ways, the same story that we've been looking at in the thread for the last year or so, that that's the story of human history, that God created the world and everything in it, that he created a good, he created us in his image to worship and serve him, to find him, to adore him, and yet we have rebelled against him, rejecting his words, seeking to establish our own authority, our own kingship. Because of that, the world and all of creation is a mess. And the good news is that God has sent his son to be a savior, to live the life we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die, that by faith in his name we might be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sin, and invited into renewed heaven and earth. And this is exactly what he's doing in the synagogue, but the way that he does that is different. He doesn't quote the Old Testament at all here. This is not a sermon per se. There was no song that was sung before Paul stood up in the Areopagus to give this message. It's more akin to a TED talk. But he can't help himself preaching and calling for a response, driving home the implications of what he said, that you need to repent and believe the good news. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't start with sin? So often in many of our gospel presentations, we're taught to start with sin, because the logic is you can't know the good news unless you know the bad news first. That's true. But might I suggest to you to start where the Bible starts with God and with creation and the goodness of creation and the image of God and then introduce sin? 
Because in fact, we only understand what sin is in light of the marring of what God has created good. And, and if you just go out, I think everybody agrees, the world is broken. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're broken. We are. What people don't agree on at all is how did we get here and how did things break? And how are things made right? You want to know the most controversial verse in the entire Bible? It's the first one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because if that is true, then we are accountable to him. God can do everything he wants, including holding us accountable for our rebellion and our sin against him. He is the creator. He is the judge. But the good news of the story is that he's also the savior. So he begins to preach Jesus and the hope of the resurrection and what happens now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite. So this is, he spends his time on the Areopagus. This is an educated man, and he's named after the Greek god of partying and wine. That's the guy that God saves. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what was the result of this? It's the same result that we get anytime we share the gospel. Some will mock. Some will be indifferent. Some will be intrigued and want to hear more. And some will believe. Some will believe. So what does this mean for us today? You are called to be a faithful evangelist, just like the Apostle Paul. You have the same Holy Spirit leading and guiding and empowering you. But in order for you to be faithful in sharing the gospel, you must also contextualize the gospel, speak the language of the people that you're seeking to reach, resonate with them where you can resonate with them, affirm what you can affirm, but you also need to contend for the truth of the gospel. So be understandable, affirm what you can, but do not apologize for God or his word or what he says. See, good, good contextualization sees that what people deeply long for the most is God. And what they think they're rejecting in the gospel for another path actually leads them into the same kind of bondage they're seeking to avoid. And that the, the deepest questions of our heart are actually answered best by the good news of the gospel. See, what's the deeper desire underneath the critique? Often people will see the abuse of authority, and so they will wholesale reject any and all authority, including God. And in fact, we're taught that the only way that we can be true is to, to discover truth within us, to reject anyone who would seek to manipulate us or squeeze us into a box. We need to find our authentic self, and that means rejecting any and all authority. Do you have any idea how much pressure that puts on us? To figure it out ourselves? to define ourselves by whatever we feel in any particular moment? Brothers and sisters, that is not freedom. That is bondage of the worst degree. To have to be the Savior, to have to be the God, to have to be the one who actually provides meaning and purpose and all of those things that we deeply seek in our life. See, in selling us freedom, it just, it's just a different form of bondage. And it's fickle. Isn't it better to think that God defines me and he's created the world and he knows a thing or two about the world that he created 
And he gets to determine right and wrong. And when I bring myself into alignment with that, it actually leads me to freedom and joy, acknowledging an authority outside myself that I don't have to be God. And that he can actually define me and what he says about me is true. And if the gospel is true, and it is, that's the best news imaginable. Because even though I'm a rebellious sinner, he loves me so much that he sent his son to live for me and to die for me and to rise again that by belief in his name, I might be reconciled, that my past, my record might be wiped away and I might be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus himself so that when God sees me, he looks at me through the lens of his perfect son who never failed once. That is good news. And that can define you. Or you can figure it out yourself. Good luck with that. See, the world would say that is a way of just trying to fit everyone in a box. But what, the, what, what I would tell you is that that is an invitation to freedom and a better story for your life than anything you can write. And that that will actually set you free. What was that? That was contextualizing and contending with today's culture and what many of you are fighting to either believe or to reject. Second, if you do this, you can expect a varied response. Not everyone will like it. Some people will oppose you, and some people will mock you. Some people will be indifferent to you, and some people will be curious and want to know more. But some people will believe. And here's the thing. If you shared the gospel with 50 people, and three of them believed, that is not failure. That's amazing. That's a miracle. Now, I get it. You have to risk your relationship in order to do that, don't you? You have to disagree with someone that you deeply love. It's way easier to do street evangelism than it is to talk to your friend about it. Because if that person rejects you, your life's no different. But if your sister does, or your brother does, or your coworker does, all of a sudden you have to still see them every single day, don't you? That's why it takes courage. And it takes a power and authority, not your own. But the good news is you've been given that. Third, begin to go or to see, feel, go, and speak. What do I see? What does that make me feel? And when I feel, you will be compelled to go or to do something. And when you go and when you do, speak words. A couple years ago, we introduced this thing called a My Five card. There's nothing magic about it. It simply adds a layer of intentionality when we think about evangelism. It's basically, who are five people in your life that are close to you but far from God? It's just a commitment that says, I'm going to write their names down on a little card. doesn't even have to be a magic card like this. Just a little card. And you're going to commit yourself to pray for them every day. Pray that, that, that God would, would open their heart to the truth of the gospel. And really, it's three commitments. Prayer, care, share. Pray is pray every day. Care, look for ways to demonstrate God's genuine care and love for them. And then share. As God leads, lovingly and appropriately share the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that if people put up walls, you just blast through them. But it does mean you bring up spiritual conversations regularly. And they'll let you know if they're open or not. Okay? And a lot of times people aren't open but a lot of times people are open. We just lack the courage to bring it into the realm of real. And so prayer, care, share. I just want to give you a minute before I pray to just ask God, God, what, what are you speaking to me today? And then we'll turn to communion. So why don't you just take a minute. Holy Spirit of God, we know 
that you are alive and that you would like nothing more than to move us in this particular area today. And so we just invite you to speak. Lord, we pray that you would bring to mind people in our life that are close to us but far from you. I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to show them that we care and that you care. And God, would you give us opportunities to share with them the hope we have in you. And so, Lord, we're asking for hundreds of opportunities this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we continue on in worship. I just want to invite you to the communion table.